0: We're excited to have Michael Rapino, who runs Live Nation, on with us for this edition of Light Shed Live. And Michael, we've spoken about your company quite a bit on the Light Shed podcast. There's a whole number of issues that we've debated, and we want to kind of dig into you. But we're with you. But our first question, the burning question, which is elephant in the room, is. How does David Solomon wind up playing Lollapalooza? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that. I love that. Right, right for it. All right. Uh, talent, pure talent. All
0: right. Let's, you mentioned the pandemic. Let's kind of rewind to the pandemic a little bit. Um, everything stopped. What's going through your head and what changes did you make and why was the pandemic the right time to make those changes?
1: Uh, you know, geez, that was two years ago now. So we uh, we had that great moment where the music stopped at 40 countries around the world. It was quite an ominous day. Um, and, you know, none of us knew at the time whether it was going to be three months, just the summer or how long it would last. Um, but, you know, listen, it, 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 I had a great conversation with. John Malone at the time. And he said to me, you know, great, great CEOs can build companies. A whole nother level can steer through the storm of this nature. Um, And that was a new skill for us. You know, Joe and I and my team looked at each other and um, never built the zero revenue model before. Right. We we were burning 200 million plus of cash a a month um, in the good days thinking we were going to have a record 2019. So all, all of a sudden you're you have to kind of find these new muscles that you, you hadn't used before and look at ourselves and, and, um, and, you know, reduce, reduce your fixed base, look at things. So, you know, the challenge and, and opportunity is always that when you're a, a growth company like us doing you know 150 shows a day, running hot, you always got a lot of things on the to-do list. You debate them though, when you're building a company and running a company, um, do I, do I change leadership? Do I, do I have the energy right now to pull this piece out, out of the equation and focus on this new initiative? What's the cost of this initiative? So all those things that kind of get pushed aside. And for once, because we were, as I would say to my team, once we got through March and April and knew we were going to be okay financially, we were able to reduce our fixed space. We had a good balance sheet. The refunds were crazy that there were, you know, 94% non-refunded at the time, quite a gift. Um, we turned it into a positive and said, this is the gift after 15 years of running a public company. We, we, the street expects nothing for the next year from us. We don't have that, how are we going to grow the business this quarter problem? We have the, how do we step back and think about all of those uh, ideas, structure, things we wanted to get done um, that we haven't had the time for? So we, we used it for that.
0: So what were what were if you had the three things that you did during that time that are gonna have lasting impact?
1: You know, I would say, you know, the, the hardest part about running a big company is 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 it's like running a football team. Do you have the right players on the ice? Right. And and there's certain players you need at certain times in your life cycle. So my job always is do I have the right leaders running the right divisions at the right time? Um, because they're the ones that have to bring the entrepreneurship to life. So when you're running hot, you don't make management decisions with the average employee that's doing okay. You kind of punt that one. So this kind of gave us that opportunity to say, let's, let's look at our structure. We restructured our complete concert division top to bottom. That wouldn't have happened um, that instantly. That would have been a three, four-year process. We broke up the venue department, brought in some new talent, that's running that now, um, amalgamated our, our, our venue department. It was bifurcated before between clubs and theater, generated that together, brought a global ticket master business together that I so wanted to get done, but I couldn't break that barrier historically of our U.S. versus international. So if you simplify it, I would say the, the, the strategic team that we wanted to get in place, um, we were able to do that. I had thought was going to take three years. We got it done in three months. Now, if the team's right with the right mission, then we can start making sure all of the other product pieces start coming to
2: life.
0: Great. I think Walt has a question.
2: Um, yeah, I think um, you had done some cost-cutting, <clears throat> um, or you did you? I mean, so I guess the the question is, what what should we expect in the cost structure going forward? Sorry, and and are, are some of those changes sustainable?
1: Yeah, we we we've talked about our two hundred million dollar reduction. Uh, we absolutely believe that you know our two and a half billion in fixed uh, will be able to withstand that two hundred million dollar reduction going forward. That doesn't mean that you won't have new growth businesses that bring new fixed up. But on an apples to apples, we absolutely are able to say that the model we were running and the model we're running today, we can run it $200 million cheaper a year uh, through a lot of these kind of, you know, you you take a master example. We had three head offices for Ticketmaster because the way we ran it, we have one head office now. Um, So we duplicated. We had three venue divisions. We have one venue division, one head office now, one set of executives, one finance team. So a lot of those structural changes that came in place will, will, will live on.
3: Maybe if you could just take us up to 50,000 feet, forget Live Nation for a second. Um, I know you're by far the biggest part of the global concert industry, but walk us through what the rest of the industry looks like now. Who Who's struggling? Are there lots of people struggling that didn't make it through the the valley of COVID nearly as well as as Live Nation did? Obviously, I assume lots of people at other companies didn't return tickets either because they love concerts. But what does the global industry look like as you look across the landscape and what opportunities does that sort of present? Right.
1: Well, you know, first of all, the industry is the the music concert industry is very different than the recorded business. We've talked about this before. Um, It is a very entrepreneurial business. You know, the, the promoters, the festival owners, the venue owners across the globe, these are Scrappy, smart entrepreneurs. So I say that because it's very different than the record label, which is you know pretty consolidated. Not a lot of independence left anymore. So this is a global independent business still. Um, so here's what we learned in COVID. The irony was when I jumped on the phone with my 40 global presidents, 39 of them weren't that excited uh, or scared because you know outside of America, most countries had a pretty good system in place. Hey, we're gonna we're gonna furlough employees on a Monday, but don't worry—they get seventy-five percent unemployment insurance. They've got health care. We're gonna hire them back. Um, there's government support programs. So, um, America—you know—we had a tougher challenge here in America on how we take care, uh, in general, of people. Um, but but that save our stages fifteen billion dollars was a big big boost to help the entrepreneurs. That happened pretty much much in every country. So. The irony is through all of the negativity of, of no revenue for all of these businesses, they all probably ended up doing all right in terms of they all got government funding, they all got government support for their employees. I mean, I just read CTS's uh, financials last week. What they, they made 250 million EBITDA and 238 was a government handout. Um, I wish. Um so um I think other than Live Nation AG, every concert company, venue owner, promoter in the world probably got a five, 10, $15 million check from the government for support. So um, the irony is I think they've all been okay. I mean, you don't really see a lot of shut down venues right now, not like the retail space and maybe some other industries. I think that entrepreneur was scrappy. I think their variable bearable costs. They shut down. They were able to you know, take care of government funding. Kind of look at the landscape today, the Troubadour is still happening. The most venues are still open and booming. Um, I think they're having the same uh, good days that we had. Most of them didn't have refunds. They held on to their refund money, probably got support, and, uh, and probably like me are having a good 22. So as bad as it was, um, these these entrepreneurs were able to downsize, regroup, and come back strong.
0: Rich brought up international and M&A is a big part of your growth strategy. I mean, in many respects, you guys are a roll-up of the live music business. You said that most of the, I guess, promoters and ticketing companies and venues uh, around the world were just fine out of COVID. What's your M&A outlook internationally look like now, given that information can, and given your current balance sheet, can you still be aggressive in your roll-up? And what markets are you really focused on?
1: So we're, you know, remind you though, we're EBITDA growth, 80 plus percent is organic, right? So uh, although we've, we've done lots of bolt-ons, um, we're still been growing this company on an organic basis. So that'll still be the path. We can, we can grow this company if we, if we never buy another asset. We have many years of great growth and monetizing our current scale, um, so so that's that. The you know, listen, our, our M and A strategy, unlike kind of big companies, is a very bolt-on, um, smaller strategy, right? We're always looking at a promoter, or a venue, or a festival. We call it. There's a hundred cities in the in the world where we have an office, um, and somewhere in one of those offices right now, there's maybe a venue for sale, maybe a development that's opportunistic for us, a young festival that wants support. Um, so I think you're gonna continually see us on a global basis, on a you know weekly and biweekly basis, have a press release that says we're now partners or, or launched or bought into a, a festival or a promoter or a venue somewhere in one of those hundred cities as we, we look to still build. As, as big as we are, this is still a really, really big global business that's on tap for us. I mean,
0: we're how big, how big, how, big, like, how many, fa- if we kind of like take 10,000 foot view, how many fans one day, I guess in 19, you had what, 98 million. How many fans one day can live nation have?
1: Well, I think on a global basis, first of all, it's a very unreported segment. So it's tough, right? Cause really you only have really good data in America. Western Europe, historically Australia. We never really had great data in all of Latin America and Western Europe and um, uh, and, and South Africa, et cetera. So I think it's a a segment bigger than the TAM we think it is. We think it's somewhere in the 30, 40, 50 billion dollar TAM of annual business. We say we're somewhere in the 20 to 30 percent market share of that on a global basis. Um, So I think we have you know the runway. To, the runway of a hundred million can be two hundred million, can be three hundred million. Yeah, those are those are numbers that you could look at on a global basis. I mean, we're just started in all of Latin America. Latin America right now happens to be one of our our busiest two thousand and twenty two seasons. Um, if you look at the business down there, but we're still, other than our Mexican offering, we're still very underdeveloped in all of Latin America. Huge opportunity. Um, we're, we're very under uh, underestimated in most of Latin or most of Pacific Rim. Although we're great in Australia, we're still got got, got pieces throughout the Pacific Rim. But big opportunity. We've never been able to crack Japan, uh, one of the biggest markets, one of the hardest markets to crack. But uh, we're working hard to figure out that one. But we have basically no market share in Japan. Uh, most of, most of Pacific Rim, uh, Eastern Europe has always been a, an opportunity for us and. We're in Cape Town now in South Africa. So uh, as these artists overnight and these new trends, Afrobeat, et cetera, are are moving fast, these artists are global. There's a 19-year-old in every city in the world right now that's listening to Dua Lupa to Drake. So uh, I've been saying this for a while, but it's it's a big global canvas that we have a lot of runway left on.
3: Are you done in the U.S.? Meaning, is there anything left to do in the U.S.? Or that's sort of complete?
1: You know, the U.S. is more of a, um,
3: you know, the U.S., you know, you
1: look at our company, it's about continuing to expand our platform and see where there's great opportunities. But every promoter, every festival ticketing partner we may buy, they're still probably on the second yard line of, of being efficiently run. So I would say, you know, the U.S. isn't so much about do we need more market share? The U.S. is about can we just do a better job every day? running a better business, hospitality, exclusive, um, on-site, VIP, uh, maximizing those customers that are already coming to our show. Um, so as you know, I've, I've said it before, this industry has not been a great business at hospitality and maximizing the fan experience. It's been about get them in the house and, and good luck, hope you like the band. So I just, we, spent,
3: I just spent three days in Disney World. They are really good at maximizing and squeezing every last penny out. And I, My guess is you could learn a lot from that experience.
1: I, I was just talking to the chairman of Disney Parks about this, and we have a team walking through there right now. No, we, if we do nothing but just figure out how to do a better job to super serve our fans walking the doors, we could grow this company for many years to come and never never buy another asset. We have a big opportunity.
3: Just sticking on M and A in the U.S. for a second, or the broader topic, you know, we were pretty skeptical that the government would stop Amazon MGM, but of course, after it closed, the government put out their you know standard statement. Well, we can always review deals that are closed and choose to review them. Well, they didn't attempt to
2: stop them, Rich. So they didn't. didn't That that attempt attempt
3: hasn't even happened. So it's not like (laughs)
2: we thought they couldn't do it. They just decided not to. Not for whatever reason. Correct.
3: You're right, Walt. Um, Thankfully, they didn't try. Obviously, there's been speculation for many years about Live Nation Ticketmaster. Do you lose sleep over the government? You know, with sort of new leadership at FTC and DOJ, or, or not a concern for you given your current sort of regulatory relationship? Well, I also would add to
2: that. I think Klobuchar and Blumenthal didn't they actually urge DOJ to to um, to go after f- uh, additional antitrust on the 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 Live Nation Ticketmaster. Did I misremember that?
1: Thanks, Walt, for adding that. Um, <laughs> they um, they actually just said that we sh- they sh- they said that the DOJ should continue to make sure they monitor our our agreement. So um, we're fine with that. So you know, I had this conversation with another company a few days ago who's much bigger than we are. This is a category that gets a lot of sexy sexy, sexy uh, news, as you know. That the story is always about the service fees. and the tickets you couldn't get, and it's it's a very misunderstood category, as we've talked about before. So let's take it in twofold. One, I, uh, I you know, we're we've been through that last review with the DOJ a year, or a couple of years ago. They spent a year reviewing our business after nine years. So we're pretty confident. When you get a one-year review by the DOJ and all those documents of nine years, um, if there's stuff to be found, they would have found it. Um, they believed that we were operating in some manner that wasn't right, they would have found it and they would have acted uh, at that time. I and mean, that was a, an intense investigation by them. And as you know, we ended up agreeing to uh, dis, uh, 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 renewing our dissent decree for a few years. So we, we were confident then that we've always complied, um, that we we're not um, um, in any, any violation, and there's lots of competition. Um, and, um, you know, we, I think at the time there were you know the thousands and thousands of shows we do a year 9 years later it was like kind of like hundreds of thousands of shows and you know was there a, was there a promoter in chicago that had a dumb email sure but is there any systemic uh challenges no this is a competitive category um and it's competitive as ever we see it today with you know Vivid being public SeatGeek going public Access by AEG um they're all StubHub going to come back bigger than ever and they're Combined company, um, and um, and you look at our fee structure on our and our margin on these tickets, um, we must be the dumbest monopoly alive. Then um, I've never met a two percent. We're going to
2: get that. We're going to get into that later in terms of your ticket pricing. Yeah, <laughs> that <laughs> right. that's been and debated the a lot. Being left yeah. on the table, but right. So but look, so the anyways, fact I, that but but the fact yeah. that it was even speculated that uh, Lena Khan would go after uh, Amazon. It just underscores the fact that you're right I mean there, maybe the facts aren't there. people would argue the same thing the facts weren't there on AT&Ts uh, when they were challenged on their, on, the, on a merger that they did um, but your sense is that despite all the the saber rattling at the regulators themselves and some of the new appointees, as well as you know some people elected officials urging them on that you're generally in the clear because the past even though that's 100% accurate, it doesn't necessarily mean how the current regulators will act.
1: Right. Um, but, you know, in the end of the day, you know, you, you, you have to have a legal legal means to do something, right? So some, something has to have happened here. Um, so I, I can't stop a, a senator from thinking ticket prices are high or someone's cranked them up about his service. Yeah.
0: Watching John Oliver.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, we, we'd like to, you know, referred all those facts and i've talked to senator about this but um so anyways we we don't believe that at the core we are operating in any any manner that um that 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 would regulate would require any new regulations where uh you know you just have to walk into any venue that we're in business with and ask them if they've got great competitive options um and what they're what they're doing so we we believe at the core our business is is strong globally and we don't think that this is other than some uh, ongoing um, kind of uh, P- PR. Now, I would say this, I would welcome any of those senators, and I've said this to them, I would welcome any of them to jump into the real guts of what the issues are in the business. I'd love new regulations to, uh, to, uh, to be more pro- proactive with fan base. That's where they sh- we would love to spend the time. Um, it's the scalpers that have done this and the secondary companies that, that really do confuse the marketplace. Um, with the service fees and the can't get tickets at 10 a.m. and spec selling and bots and a bunch of things, I'd love it to clean all that up. We we take the punch in the nose from it, as you saw from uh, Oliver's report. I mean, he he was using venues we don't even ticket. Um, so we we would love to reinvent the business from a more fan friendly perspective, um, but we can't do it on our own.
2: So I'm going to call an audible here because um, I think the segue on this is is good. Um, Given the demand for the concerts, which Brandon talks about, you know, weekly it feels like on our podcast, either going to concerts or just demonstrating how well you guys been doing, things seem to be going pretty well. Um, can you go into a little bit about how platinum tickets work? Because it you know, if I go to a sporting event, I'm paying significantly higher than what I think Brandon is paying for his his tickets, and it's directly to the teams themselves, even for regular season games, and it seems like it feels like there's been a massive lag in that you just, you're not, you're not, you're not increasing. I don't, I just don't understand. So can you just walk us through how platinum tickets work and why you are just aren't charging materially? Everyone is charging more. Like now you even have the, the kind of the, the cover of inflation um, to charge, to charge more. So why is that not happening? Or or maybe it is, and maybe you can explain how platinum tickets work for the novice like myself.
1: Right. No, it's a great question. I mean, the, the best way to eliminate a lot of the friction of secondary is to price it right. We're, we're the only real industry in life that is worth more the second it's sold. Most markets would sneakers. Business, sneakers, you're right. <laughs> they, they've been new now too, and you're right. But generally, businesses charge to the market if they can. Um, but artists, you know, it's a, first of all, they're you know it's a fragmented business, right? We're dealing with fifteen hundred different managers and artists a year, so. There's no players union. There's no one one NFL that decides the artist decides 100 percent on the ticket price, not me. Um, And the artists, you know, I always say are are great brand managers. Uh, When you sit with an artist and you talk about his show and his ability to say, I want to make sure that everyone come to my show. And you're the brand manager and you're 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 Bruce Springsteen or, or name your favorite band. You know, he's not looking to maximize every dollar that night. But isn't that
2: naive? Because that tick is going to someone that's that's going to jack up the price and prevent that fan from going to the show anyway.
0: He's saying bots and brokers are still a problem.
2: I'm not saying it's. I'm not saying it's efficient. I'm just
1: giving you the. You asked me why. I'm just saying yeah. if you're if you're the artist, you have to make a PR decision. Do you want to be the one that has a six thousand dollar front row seat? or to stub above that that's a big difference right yeah you're playing long with your fans and you're not Is your only revenue stream isn't that night you've got a macro economic model to run so you're you're debating as a as an artist what what is the fair marketing uh price that i want my artist my show to be i'm not trying to maximize every dollar and i understand it's inefficient and there's leakage And I may live with that if I know that I'm still able to say my show was affordable, what I could control, this is how I wanted to price it.
2: So it just, it just, but but Michael, it it feels like there's a massive gap between if I go to a Broadway show, if I go to a sporting event, you know, what I'm paying for the ticket price, the face ticket price to sit on the 30 yard line for a crappy Giants game versus sitting up in, in the boondocks. It's still, there's a massive discrepancy with your events versus what's happening in other live events that are in the market.
0: You might be able to get a Giants ticket for like five bucks on the fifty this year. <laughs> and but, Michael, I mean, my, my and to
3: Michael, to be clear, <laughs> no, no, no. But, but to be clear, we're not blaming you. We're trying no. to understand I, I why agree. the opportunity doesn't get you don't seized need to on by the artists and the managers. No,
2: you don't need to soften my question. No,
0: no Walt, Walt is extremely impatient about these things and we discuss this on the podcast and he's like well why isn't it happening now like why yeah. like why is ticket pricing increasing on average only like high you know mid to high single digits a year
2: and, and yeah. i and i can't it, and to be honest i can't accept the excuse that like every artist is like this feel-good person i mean these are you know <laughs> these people are work hard and they're capitalists to a, to a large extent as well so i, I right. just
1: well but, but they're you know so you're right if you look at the last 10 years, it's, 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 it's moving up, but overall the reason we haven't been able to instantly price every ticket to market um, is because the artist controls the pricing and they have a view on what their price should be for their fans. So that's, that is the reality on, on where now that doesn't mean the stones are different, right? The stones have a different philosophy than, than Springsteen. So every artist has a different place. They're in a different life cycle. Um, but you're right, Walt. It's what we talk about. It's why we say we're going to be, we're going to have great growth opportunity because I can't get this done overnight. We've been getting it done every year. The, incre- the, the pricing better. Yeah, we'll, It'll take another five, 10 years where you're right. At some point we'll be sitting here and the artist will say, I no longer want to give any of my market away to someone else in the middle. I want to price it right.
2: Um, so, in now, telecom we, terms, that's great. Arpu tailwind, <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right? So, we'll get there. It. Now, we we also believe that there's, you know, there's always a technology balance going on with this fight too, right? Because then there's the idea of, well, what if I do want to price it at a hundred bucks? Is there technology that can make sure no one else can resell it for more than a hundred? So, there's that happens outside of America where there are caps on secondary and the market's not attractive. So there the artist is okay saying it's 110 bucks because no one's making money on it. We haven't been able to get that done because of America free market a little different here. Um, blockchain and other things have, have great ideas that they could get there. So, you know, you're, you're balancing two things with an artist. Can I, are there tools that can help me make sure the ticket price that I want can get delivered to my fan? Um, we'd like to believe that we could get there on a technology front, um, but to date, that's not been successful.
2: All right, so I was going to be done, but I'm getting I'm getting fed a good question by uh, one of our clients here, saying, "Why is there even a secondary market? I mean, you've got terrorism; you can't just walk into a you can't just walk on a plane Risk or management. walk into a, a government building with an ID. So, like, and you can't resell a plane ticket. So, you know, why can't why can't there be more control of over the secondary market?
1: Yeah, that's not we, – we've tried, but that's uh, going back to my point about the, the senator's note, right? Would I, would I love them to all attack this? But in, it's the opposite, right? The secondaries have done a really good job lobbying to convince everyone that a ticket – who owns the ticket? And it's free enterprise, and you, Walt, can't put regulations on uh, that you know, whatever you you bought the watch and you sold it on eBay for whatever you wanted, you can't tell me what to do with my ticket. I bought it. I can do what I want. We've had these debates with the FTC and DOJ because I do believe that the artist owns the ticket. I actually think that artist should be able to say what rules could be put on that ticket. Um, my job is to get the ticket to the consumer at the price the artist wants. And if an artist wants to charge 200 bucks, I think it should be a ticket that's closed and not able to be resold, or maybe resold for five percent, ten percent. I think the artists should have all the economics and the control. And if they want to underprice it for their fans, their fans should buy it. I mean, but the technology,
2: there, but the technology is clearly there to enable.
1: Clearly there, but the but the uh, there's no version that you're going to get a uh, enterprise platform marketplace regulated in today's uh, economy. I wish I wish we would have more. Uh, more, more zest from some of the Bill Pasquale's and others on actually doing that because the secondary is the issue.
3: So the question that came in is from an anonymous uh, listener, but it ties into this whole ticket pricing topic is how, when, how or when does blockchain play into concert tickets? Is this months away, two plus years away? Basically, how does this impact this whole discussion you're having about primary, secondary, like where does it fit and where, where are you in this process?
1: Yeah, I think what I think blockchain, you know, it's a at the core, it's another infrastructure technology um, that lets us maintain rights. So a ticket to date has gone from a PDF to now a digital ticket. A digital ticket has rights. We could put whatever rights we want on it. Um, and that and that could also be applied to a blockchain. Um, you know, to date, the blockchain hasn't been efficient enough to put a mass amount of tickets on. You couldn't do a 10 a.m. on sale. Um, it couldn't handle the load, the cost, et cetera. But that'll get there over the next few years. We're, we're, we'll end up moving most of our tickets, all of our tickets to a probably a blockchain for our contract. Now, that's different than access control. You can put <laughs> tickets on a block, but, you, but, but how you enter the, ve- the venue and what your access control has to have a separate set of rules um sorry why even
0: why even use the blockchain though i mean what advantages does the blockchain serve that are greater than the digital ticketing that you have now
1: well i think there's two things. i i again your point on the the access controller i get a safe tickets so i can walk into a venue you need that because you know you can't just have a ticket on a blockchain that any of us could look at and go great i'm going to take right. that and all six of us are going to show up at the show, right? So you, you still need access control. Um, so you, you're, you know, so there are two very different levels of what I need and what's traded. Um, but I think I think the blockchain, in its macro sense, can be overall an efficient infrastructure to to house the ticket, which can ultimately. You look at Live Nation and you look at the NFL, the NBA we're all looking at this ticket now as more of a contract relationship item that maybe has an ongoing life. So I do think there is a, you know, we've launched this idea of live stubs or live, live tickets. NFL's got them. There is an idea that holding onto that ticket on a block, having a relationship with that, uh, that ticket that could have value over time is an interesting new idea that takes a paper ticket and gives it some, uh, some new energy around what you could do with it. Less but, about controlling it, but more about the relationship you could build with it.
0: When you talk about relationship though, I mean a lot of the successful NFT projects have felt like you're part of a club. I look at Board Ape, they they have yep. events. Um, they have new drops, so on and so forth. Is that the type of relationship that you're trying to build with the artists or are there other things that you could do with digital tickets and blockchain that are different than that?
1: I think that to date's the gold star. I think this is all, you know, what are we in the first inning of this new world? So I I don't think we have all the answers, but I do think that, that idea that we would want to create uh, community of value, ongoing with 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 customers, is is, is a new way to look at that. Whether you know, it used to be the fan club, um, used to be a loyalty club. Uh, obviously, the Apes have mastered the game of that triangle of incredible community. Um, um, so, whether it's the artist that wants to do it, we get asked that a lot. Whether it's the team, the NFL team that has a community, maybe we're doing it around our our clubs, our ones to watch. We can we have sub communities we think are are interesting ideas to have a nft value ongoing relationship with so uh, you know i just look at it as the ticket now has this opportunity to deliver more value than a than a than a blank ticket stub the night of and ownership to that on the on the on the block is is an interesting idea
0: you talked um, a little bit about how artists decide on the price of the tickets. And I know you've built a significant amount of tools for artists um, to give them, I guess, more control over the way ticketing happens. You built the, the secondary marketplace for Pearl Jam. What, what are some of the, the, the things that digital ticketing enables that are going to change the relationship between artist and consumer and how we see on sales take place in the future
1: well on a macro level to walt's point our, our number one job is to you know decide from where we're going to play the shows and where they want to what venues and all the routing stuff is how do you price it and and that's that's been the biggest advance over the last let's call it five years the dynamic pricing model You know, our job, as Walt would say, our job is to get to that most efficient means we can. Market meets ticket demand, right? So we're pushing that at all times. This is because I I actually like it because I want the front row to be more expensive, because I want the back row to be cheaper and to get full sell through. Most, you know, only two percent of our shows really sell out. Most of the time, our job is to sell the back end of the house, right? And usually the you never ever have a problem in life selling the front of the house. We've never woken up and said we sold the back row. What do we do now? I mean, that's uh,
2: there's an argument right there for jacking those prices up. You're, <laughs> you're actually doing people a favor by you could lower the prices at the high end, and then everyone's happier because then you have that what's that movie thing they call rich the communal experience. What did they? What did, uh? The that collective. The, the collective. collective. <laughs> you have the collective. The collective right. experience. Right. Who said no, that? No, you're idea? right. That that's Quentin the- Quentin Tarantino. Yeah
1: that's the model well and you know whether or, or the opposite is you know your friday night should be worth a lot more than a tuesday in cleveland and your sure, aisle sure. seats worth more than your so you know brandon part of you know the whole pricing uh dynamic tools that we use with the artist and and do a lot of simulation on here's what the gross could be in this model this night this is how you price it better um we, we've moved them really far over the last five years and and, and as you said. Walt, every day that they see secondary market prices, they now have more appetite on their next tour to say, you know what, now I want to charge more for the P1s and the Platinums because I left too much in the middleman. So that, that, that kind of sunlight has been very effective at moving the pricing forward over the last five, eight, six years. It, it'll excel even more over the next five
3: Who's been the best? I mean, I want to move on to another topic, but if you want to look at like artists, are there artists that you look at as models of like, they get it, like they've been far more thoughtful about how to price?
1: Well, I mean, listen, the Stones have always been great at the at owning it,
3: right? right. I remember
1: we did the show in um, in the Hollywood Bowl and it was a 40-year anniversary. And 40 years earlier, they charged $6 and this time it was six hundred got on stage and said, you know, the set list hasn't changed, just the price, right? So um, <laughs> they've been true. able to own, they've been able to own that. It's an, ex- you know, and I've, I applaud them on that because uh, to, to Walt's point, it tries, I, I use this analogy all the time. We we brag about how expensive the, the court sides at basketball games are. No, nobody is writing a shitty tweet about the Lakers not letting anyone sit courtside. Um, but when an artist has too expensive of a price, it's on page six that they're, um, you know, so they, they, they're held to a different standard, which is the, the hard part for them. Um, whereas sports celebrates the grosses um, and the high ticket prices, even though there's, there's 80 games in a year or 60, um, it, it makes no sense. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to go tell you who does it well, because that would imply they price it well. I would say though, that, the, 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 the global t- artists, the place who just started uh, down in South America doing a global stadium tour, uh, their manager, Dave Holmes, their team's deep in it. We, we spend a lot of time, not so much even making sure the price is high. It's just how do we sell through 100 stadiums in a global market? What is the right pricing in different markets on different days for the sell through? Um, so you're you're finding that you know. So the sell through is the first job you got to do, sell it out, and then from there debate how much you left on the table. But going back to that, two percent of people only sell out. Don't don't underestimate. It's hard to sell out. Like we you we, we only read about the Adeles and the odd tour that get the press that it make it look like it's a free for all and everything's underpriced and how dumb we are. You know, no no most most ninety eight percent of what we do is to figure out how do we sell the rest of the house. Um, did you price it right on, on that model and sell it out? I mean, the artist wants to sell out before the money, right? So, so uh, you know, Coldplay does it amazing. Um, you know, the, the Beyonce teams gets it when they go out. They know what they're doing. Um, I, I would say, you know, Irving Azov's a genius at the game. Obviously, what he does with the Eagles and understanding what that market does. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, our global tour, amazed at it. Uh, so that the veterans in the business, as you would assume, get it. They've been de- dealing with this. Next generation is is learning fast.
3: You talk about your relationship. I think you brought up before the relationship between Live Nation and the fan, and sort of bringing those two closer together and really building it. You were referencing it, sort of related to to blockchain. But but even leaving blockchain aside, I feel like this is a topic that you know you specifically have been talking about for a very long time, probably a decade plus. And I just. How would you judge or rate sort of Live Nation's progress against that sort of fan relationship?
1: No, I wouldn't say we've made, I think at the core, we're still a B2B business. We have not, you know, I have purposely not really gone forward with a lot of Live Nation consumer initiatives um, directly um, for that reason. At the core, we're a B2B business and being part of B2B gets dragged in a lot of the, a lot of the muck, right, in terms of the ticket price and, you know there's there's an old saying by fred rosen right when you work in the concert business you you know you only you only can make ninety-five percent of your people pissed off at you right it's the if I got a front row seat I love you you know for a few people that got in the building you're okay and then everyone that couldn't can't stand you right so this is a business that's every day you're you're disappointing lots of fans uh, if you're a BTS fan etc so it's been hard always to say what what's the value Directly to a consumer, a big brand can deliver um, when all they really want is great seats at a cheap price, and I want to get them now. Um, So I would say when I say Live Nation direct though on the on the blockchain, remember I think of it more of all of our sub brands, right? Like Lollapalooza is an incredible brand. We're looking at a lot of cool community ideas there. uh, To your point, Brandon, about what you could do with a token and a and a blockchain with that community. Rolling Rolling Loud is incredible brand that the that our partners have built uh, Insomniac and EDC Pascal. He's he is a guy from Cirque du Soleil. He's a genius creator. You look at Electric Daisy, four hundred thousand people. Um, his brand is is really connects with his headliners, as he calls them. A um, lot of lot of ways to work direct there. Um, they're the ones that have launched. A, um, you know, in- interesting. You know, they they did the Roblox game. They're launching a the weed line. They're watching a the water line. So. I look at more as B2, Live Nation is the B two B company. We have a lot of we have a lot of brands within that festival brands, maybe venue brands, and other brands that do a better job delivering a more concise uh, value to a to our targeted customer.
0: You just used the word brand like twenty times, and so that leads us to our next question. A lot of people don't your sponsorship division is very much a, a big contributor to your overall profitability, but a lot of people don't understand what happens there. A lot of people think it's just venue signage. Can you just kind of level set um, with the listeners and, and talk about what what are the revenue drivers in your sponsorship business? How do you make money there and why is it growing consistently? And I think this sinks into a lot of the topics that we talk about, about just the difficulty of brands reaching consumers now, especially, you know, given some of the problems on digital.
1: Right. Well, if you think of the old model, you just do the cascade and the simplicity. And I was one of these guys. If you're a brand manager and you have a brand, you have a marketing budget and you're probably spending... 80% 80% of it on your traditional marketing, whatever that may be at the time, TV campaign, radio, digital, however you're going to reach your, your mass consumer, if you're American Express or, or Ford, uh, Ford truck. Um, but then you got 20% of your budget was probably is called promotion. And you, you're going to go out and look at sports and or music as ways to probably activate your brand in a different means than your mainstream media. Find ways to probably connect both with the image of those athletes or artists and or on site um, in a more direct manner. So it's always been about a $20 billion business and promotion, but 3 billion is um, in in the uh, music specific. And most of it is in sports because it's you know by the NBA finals and et cetera. So if we do nothing else every day, there's always been this kind of three, $4 billion pie that a brand says, you know what? I, I wanna I wanna have some music in my portfolio for my brand to touch 19 to 24 or some customer segment. So when we talk about growing our business, we were the first company that delivered any scale in that triangle of three or four billion. Up until then, if you were working for American Express or Gucci or Budweiser, you were working with some regional promoter, maybe you had a festival, maybe you had a tour. I've always said we were the NFL. We were able to provide a legitimate glo- global and, and, and scalable avenue for you to spend that three or four billion. And it wasn't gonna be a one-off, we could deliver you consistency. So just, just chipping away at that, that, that piece of the pie alone has been able to give us annual growth. And we're still undeveloped in that category. Now you're right, that's, that slice though, has grown over the last 10 years. While people. While the mainstream media got confused on the TV campaign versus the, the mainline, they weren't weren't sure where to spend it anymore. They actually started to spend more in that $20 million slice and that music slice. So for our business, just mathematically, if we just keep growing at 10% plus a year of getting more of the $4 million slice, and the $4 million slice is growing at double digits every year, I don't have to do anything more than just get do a better job than my competitors when a brand says, I want, to, I want to be in the music business. I mean, you know, you can imagine every crypto fintech company alive right now says, I want to be in that music business. So I probably should meet with Live Nation. I should meet with AEG and maybe Coachella. And,
0: and that's it.
1: <laughs> and then regional, right? You know, maybe they're going to do a nice program in New York or a, a, and a regional program. But if you need a national scale, you want, you want some consistency, Um, You're going to go meet with, you know, like Hans said on uh, CNBC last week. It's like, you know, we want to be in the NFL. We want to be in the NBA. We want to be a live nation. We want these national brands that can give us national 360-day coverage. So we really have established ourselves that with our concert uh, business and scale of of, uh, 98 million customers walking in our doors, we can say to a brand, listen, if you want to touch in the music business, a certain segment, we have great data around our customer, those 98 million. You want a, you want to segment around a 19 year old, a 34, uh, you know, where, where geographically uh, we can give you all of that dynamic. We can do it two ways. We can do it on site consistently. So, where do you want to be? Do you want to touch a program literally on site? Do you want to um, touch the customers at our festivals? Where do you want to touch the customers continually where we can set up real? Uh, innovative ideas on site. That's a big business in itself. Then you have the digital. And by the way, we have 5 billion impressions. We have a huge digital platform. We have incredible inventory of access. Um, And we have an artist portfolio. Would you like to look at that portfolio and see what would you like to do with your brand on an ongoing basis? So uh, Pawns, for example, they're never going to be on site. They're never going to be at one of our venues. They're just going to be a brand that says, we want to be able to offer our customers access to your concerts on a, on a, on a special basis, um, as well as when they're on site, they get to use our 5G phones now or better better spectrum.
2: So Hans, Hans likes to go to a lot of events. I see him posting on Instagram about going to Knicks games and Rangers games. He's everywhere. So maybe he will want to be on site testing his little 5G phone, 360 cameras <laughs> for all the venues um oh. can we shift gears we've talked about sponsorship being <laughs> great and you, this big tailwind on pricing so let's let's look at the opposite way which is you know i was perusing through some old transcripts in 2011 and you were talking about um gas being a headwind and the, the price of gas in 2011 or being- irving I was, was. <laughs> you know, uh, brandy gave me that data point i definitely was not no, perusing no but any transcripts he brought up Irving earlier so um, you know <laughs> um Obviously, there's unrest in Europe. I think you know Brandon's talked about Europe being important in terms of touring, and then you've got gas. I mean, what what are the what are the major risk factors? Because it seems like there are some building, even just you know we've talked about on the podcast last week, just inflation getting people to work these concerts. It's it's hard to find people anywhere. So if you just kind of tick off the hot button list: inflation, gas, war, yeah. um, and yeah. how that impacts you this year.
1: Yeah. No, I've, I've now, uh, I, I really was prepared for Brandon and Rich. I did not do enough homework to realize Waltz, the pessimistic, non-music. The heavy. Uh, <laughs> <arrow> <laughs> in, non-music. In the, I yeah, appreciate
0: we, all music, you. Michael. I was scared. you had 99 episodes of the Lightshed podcast, I watched
1: it, but I never really put together that he was the, He's the sports guy that's like this music business, I don't care. <laughs> Let me, uh, um, uh, nobody so wants
3: to pay you more money, though. That's a good thing. He'll pay you as so much thing. money as yeah. you
2: charge him. No, I'll just pay you to not stand in line. That's why I will pay for
1: Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever said gas is a headwind, but I, I, I would say that. You know, if you look at the history of the concert business, historically over the last fifty years, we used to say it's inflation-proof. Historically, it has been. Um, If you really look on the last fifty years, we've had compound eight to ten percent growth as an industry. Only in two thousand and nine, when the when the market collapsed, that we had that one year where ticket prices and the market went down. uh, The the industry was down ten percent. So that was the first time we're in. We weren't able to say, you know, it didn't, it wasn't, wasn't uh, inflation proof, but it historically has been. Now, I think, Walt, to your point, because we still have a wildly underpriced business, so that's the good news, right? Is this isn't, uh, you know, you might not buy the seven hundred dollar Laker ticket, um, but you buy the seventy dollar concert ticket in in Irvine Plaza. So, uh, historically, we don't tend to get hit by inflation at the same at, at any any rate probably because what our research will say is I only go to two shows a year. They're magic moments. They're yeah. very, very high, high octane moments for a low price. So I might not go to Disneyland or buy a dishwasher, but I still got to bring my daughter to BTS or my, my, my wife to a uh, to a show. So we've always found that when the dollars get stretched, this still stays in the annual calendar because it's a good, high valued low-cost escape um, so we haven't been, been hit to date, uh, historically. So we don't see it right now. Um, you look at what we have on sale, even that's been selling out the last few weeks. So let's call it that's, you know, that would be the best data we see have no, there's no slowdown that we see anywhere that says all oh, that, that the gas or the inflation is, is making me rethink my summer plan. So we haven't been affected by it yet. Don't seem to be affected by it. I believe that because we they sat on the sidelines for a couple of years. they have got a lot of discretionary spend. Getting those two shows back in the calendar is a must this summer or the festival that, that they want to get to. So we, we've seen to so far um, been, been rising above any of those short term issues from our supply. Um, the war, again, it hasn't affected us. You know, we don't we don't do much in, uh, in Russia or Ukraine on an annual basis. So those two markets alone don't mean anything. We haven't had any European effect. Um, Western Europe is business as usual, summer festivals selling out. Uh, Eastern Europe is a small business for us, Poland, et cetera. So no, no business of substance uh, affected yet. And, and overall, Europe hasn't affected. I, I would say the one piece, though, that you are right, is we're all living through the new reality of a higher labor uh,
2: cost, um, or just any, or just any labor just actually. Yeah.
0: People. I mean, you definitely, some of your venues last summer, the lines were longer at times to get in the venue service. Wasn't, yeah. you know, quite what it used to be.
1: hundred percent. No, we, uh, well, you know, now the good news is I don't think we'll have a get, get enough employee problem. Like you see, when you went, you know, we've all been there to the restaurant or hotel right now that can't staff well enough. You know, we, we had this, Again, this industry has this this kind of lucky ba- base to it that people love working in the music business. So this this is a little bit of a you know the summer student, the, the intern they want to work at the amphitheater at Jones Beach this summer. It's a fun job to have. So we always have that natural excitement of the passionate staff member. Uh, so I don't think we'll have a problem that we can't hire them. But absolutely, we're looking right now at the supply chain and, re- and seeing that. You know, festivals, one-offs, transporting the fu- transporting the trucks, the fuel, all of those things will add up to. We'll have an incremental variable cost to execute some shows and manpower. Now, to date, that's all been priced into the new into the increase in the price. Um, so we're, we're able to kind of take care of the incremental variables by the incremental pricing. Um, but we'll see as as we get through the year if that's a, a, a new set standard or, or a short term issue.
3: So, you know, you, you've talked, um, not just you, but Joe, I heard Joe on stage the other day. And there's obviously been this just incredible thirst for live entertainment um, everywhere in the world. I mean, I saw it firsthand looking at what was going on at Disney World over the last few days. Like it is just the airports are insane. Everything's insane right now. We've seen a bunch of other industries that, you know, streaming um, industries, things that have seen real pull forwards in 2021. How worried are you or maybe not even worried, but how do you know that 2022 or even first half of 2023 isn't sort of a pull forward for concert demand um, and that it's going to get, you know, does does this create a tough comp? And I know that's sort of impossible to ask, but how do you think about spreading out concerts to spread out demand versus capitalizing the fact that everybody wants to go to a show and everything you put on tour is lighting up? Like, I just I don't even know how you think about that or how you how you handle that.
1: Right. Well, I guess here's the good news. I think COVID, I think you've heard me for 10 years, been talking about the experience economy and why the show is important. Right. Sure. And
3: I think you'll know. The the macro trend is positive. I don't dispute the macro trend. I'm just wondering whether there's lumpiness because of what's happening. No, But
1: but I say that in the sense of, you know, if you asked me two years ago, God, I I didn't know what the macro trend was going to look like. I didn't know if there was a
3: behavioral change
1: that we were missing here what was so I am relieved that two years later I can sit here and say, do I what do I really care about since I always play long? Is are we going to get back to a great eight to 10 annual business growth on this industry? Is this a vibrant industry that I don't know any other industry that's had 40, 50 years of that kind of growth. So I believe that when you look at this twenty two, twenty three 23 credible demands uh, supply. Um, so by 24, will, will we be at the same level as a 22, 23? Probably not. Will we be, will we be smoothed out back to a nice 8 to 10% annual growth rate? Yes. So I, I'm less worried that there's an air pocket that doesn't have a good continued growth plan going forward. I don't, I'm not going to tell you that 23 or, or the 24 is going to have the same fury of supply of this year and next year. But the good news with our business is our business is in a three-year cycle. So if you toured, didn't tour in the last two years, you may be touring now or next year, but that still doesn't get enough of the backlog done. So 24 still will be a good year because you couldn't, you couldn't flush through all the tours if you wanted in one year or two years, given we, had an un, you know, we weren't even sure when 22 was really going to start globally. So 22 is not even really a full year. Because a lot of the artists knew that, you know, the world wasn't opening until April, May and all around the world. So you can kind of look at 23 into 24 look really good. Uh, I'm less worried by then that the business won't have its continual um, high end growth that, uh, that we'll be capitalizing on.
0: I know we're kind of coming towards the end here um, and you have to go, Michael. I, I but... want to win
2: Walt's over still. What...
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can keep going. <laughs> what didn't we I win? Didn't want you, I, just
2: want to, I just want you to make more money, that's
3: all. <laughs> the <laughs> way to solve 24, the way that we <laughs> to solve 24 is just jack ticket pricing by 50% in the Walt plan and you make numbers like you'll have huge growth.
1: Well, uh, I, I would agree. We, we, we are aligned, Walt. Timing may be different for you and I, but I will. Uh, we're aligned on strategy.
2: No, you know it's like you know what I view it. Walt's as it's a like? very
0: impatient person. Trust that me, that is very
2: true. But it's like <laughs> it's like dropping a big special dividend as opposed to kind of growing it out, or just one share repurchase as opposed to steady share. We. I get it.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna loop you into my next talent call. See how I do.
3: do. <laughs> <Man. laughs> this.
0: Right. We, 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 we we have to get to the M word question because hey what's a call in the last two years without a metaverse question. And we have two of them um, from the Q and a, so I, I guess I could just read them both off and you could kind of give your reaction. The first one from Ezra, how does live nation view the virtual concert slash metaverse space? Will the company partner with others already in the space like wave or develop its own offering? And then the, other one here. Thanks for the great talk. We'll echo that. would love to hear Michael's view on how Live Nation may be looking at the interactive sector, what opportunities um, and what threats the metaverse may pose to the established business model. Um, and this person's thinking about how streaming has impacted the theatrical business. It, in the film business, um, and do live events in the interactive realm affect how you see the business in the future?
1: Uh, you know, I think we, at the core, the beautiful part is those two hours are, are not duplicatable, as we have all learned through COVID, why we all ran back to it. It's a, it's a unique offering. So, unlike um, you know, streaming where yes, uh, my 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 home theater does a much, much better job than a movie theater. That's a different analogy. Uh, we just know that that two hours is magic. the customers, the fans, why you want to go there. So I, I say that's what makes us very unique as an industry. there's this is not something that can be replicated at home. Now, I've said it, we've gotta continue to look at ways to complement it. doesn't mean it can only exist there. So um, we think that there's, you know, whether they're festivals and et cetera, we should look at all the ways we're an incredible relationships. something brewing really well with, uh, with Snap and other companies. We think there's great ways that we should enhance the experience when you're on site, when you're at home, can you watch it at home? Can you be part of it at home? Can you get a Lollapalooza? Um, you know, can you go a Lollapalooza within sandbox? Should we have venues in the, in the meta world in and out, all of those things we're going to be part of. Um, we think those are all great ultimately marketing extensions to the core idea, uh, the core product. Um, so yes, we think we should beat them and we should video them and we should bring them to virtual worlds and, 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 and do everything we can to be part of it so the customer and the young fan can, can be part of it on site and off. Um, I don't think it means that the value of I need to go see Beyonce live uh, with my with my book, my, my daughter goes away. I think it just adds more value to it, whether you're on site or at home. Uh, ways we can extend it and, and, and capitalize on it.
0: All right, we're kind of winding, like really winding down now. I just I just had one question that I kind of always wanted to ask you. Um, you've been to probably you know most or many of the venues in this country. What's your favorite outdoor venue to see a show, and what's your favorite larger indoor place to see a show?
1: Um,
3: the, the Michael Rapino bucket list. It,
1: oh, you know, probably, uh, you know, if I, if I wanted on, on a global basis, you know, I, I, I would say there's a credible venue in Ireland called Slain Castle that has done historic shows over time. It's a beautiful outdoor setting, and U2 is famous for doing shows there and others. So I, I would say some of the European outdoor, you know, I've sat in the middle of uh, outside of Milan in an incredible old old, old venue um, w- watching some local artists. But I'd say Slane Castle in Ireland is a spectacular place to see it. If you want to do America, well, there's nothing like the Hollywood Bowl. They have figured out how to have this magical moment within shows, which I love um so i think that's there i, I tell you the no, the new SoFi stadium though in la got to give the cronkies credit that's uh that's one beautiful new uh new stadium for a big 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 house um indoor and i just had this conversation with my design team that i think we all got a lot of work to do to to, to, to change up the game indoors part of what we're thinking about in venue nation i think I think we're pretty cookie cutter right now in the five, the twos, the arenas. They're all looking a little the same. So I think we have a great opportunity to reimagine what a live venue means in the future.
0: Well, Jim's um, trying to do that with the Sphere. I, I, what, what do you think of the Sphere?
1: I'm a, I'm a big fan of Jim. Jim's been very good to, to Live Nation. So I, I, uh, I think I give him full credit for swinging really big and a new idea we met him last week. Um, you know, I don't know for a billionaire that's got a lot going on he is very committed and passionate to the same idea that the the model needs there's a there's an opportunity to change the game on the way you think about live entertainment and dealing it. So I, I, I think he I think he's so committed to the idea that I think it I don't know if the you know out of the box it, it'll it'll be right but I think he I think he creates something ongoing there and other places um, that'll be unique um and i give them credit because i think i think we need continually to we have been a business driven by the sports business right we're the tail on the dog so uh music now is the dog it can stand on its own so i do think we do need ways to say well how can you 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 really drive and build and and design unique music venues for the future you know what one of the things that i drive my team crazy with is going to Walt's part on pricing you know we're an industry in general that is a ga industry
3: mm-hmm. but it's not really a
1: ga industry we're kind of like you know like 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 american airlines where we just put that one lot, you know one first row with some peanuts and say here but the market is an experience and we should be flipping it around because people want to pay for great experiences not way in the balcony but front row so Thinking about our business differently, that ultimately our audience isn't a GA audience. There's a whole bunch of segments within that audience that want to have better experiences. And we don't think that way. We kind of GA it and then put someone on a balcony and give them a VIP lounge. Um, So I think that the future will be about, can I go have a wildly great experience at the live venue? And I'll pay for the different segments. Um, And that is 90% of 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 the floor, not
2: not 2% of the floor. Uh, I pay for I pay for the mosh pit, not the balcony, but here's your, here's your final question, which is what has been your most, your personal, most memorable experience at an event, obviously, but I'll call it an experience. Cause that's what we're talking about now. Your most memorable experience in your lifetime that you were there personally.
1: Um, you know, we're, we've had a, Incredible relationship with U2 and Bono and the band, their, their, their family, I think the world of him. Um, we flew, we were staying in, the, in, the, in Bono's place in south of France, so we flew that day to his show in Rome, the U2 plane. He's playing a stadium show, and uh, he gives Michael Rapino a, a shout out for being in his homeland. Italy. <laughs> that's um, awesome and then we, <laughs> then, cool. we, then we flew back together that night so yeah when you're sitting in Rome that's in pretty good air, that's a that, that, that that's does it so. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome and I didn't have my phone I hadn't recorded it so I uh,
2: even better I, it's in the mind it But we even love it even more legendary
1: but yeah that, that, that goes down in the, uh, in the list of doing that. amazing awesome. all right guys I hope uh, thank you, thank you. Help the uh, a few people understand our business better. Please get your time, everyone. Take
0: care Thank you, Michael. You. Thanks for being a part of this.